Many of you are familiar with the name Paul Harvey. Um, I know it's quite a risk speaking about a radio personality in the age of the Internet. Uh, but I think many of you have heard of him. He often, uh, his uh, radio show was called um, The Rest of the Story. Uh, what he would do, and he did this for years since World War II on, uh, was that he would introduce a story, and uh, a, a story perhaps familiar to us, and, and, then, and then he would bring up facts known about the story that perhaps weren't widely known. In other words, they would introduce things that would surprise us or catch us off guards, like the, the mystery writer who actually tried to commit a murder and keep it a mystery. And, and, and he would always bring the other side of the story. Well, today when we look at this passage, it's familiar to many of you. You think in Matthew eleven twenty eight, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. You, you've heard this invitation before. That Jesus goes forth and gives an invitation. Well, Jesus is going to give us the rest of the story to salvation. It's an invitation to a great salvation. But, but he's going to give us the rest of the story. And so I want, to, I want you to look at the sermon in two parts. The first part being, what is the foundation of this great invitation? In other words, what is, what is giving birth to this glorious invitation? Come unto me. What gives birth to that? It's, it's mysterious, I want to tell you that. It's going to be hard to comprehend, but it is glorious. So I want to look at the foundation, and then I want to spend some time on the invitation itself to understand what's it mean to come to him when you're weary and heavy laden. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew eleven twenty-five to 30. 11, 25 to 30. We're going to look at the hidden things or really the foundation of salvation, that which is not readily understood. In fact, many of you here who have come to Christ, this may be actually news to you on how you came. You kind of see the other side of your conversion. Matthew eleven twenty-five to 30. It says, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So what precedes this great invitation? What forms the foundation that Jesus can actually say, come to me if you're weary and heavy laden? Now, look with me in 25, he says, at that time. That's not a precise marker, but, but it must draw our minds to what immediately precedes it. What did we just hear last week? We, we heard about the nature of, of these towns in Galilee that were rejecting Jesus. So Jesus goes out and he preaches the gospel. He performs miracles. He calls people to repentance and they reject him. They turn aside from him. Jesus even names the towns that reject Jesus. It's incredible. They reject him. Well, how does Jesus respond to such rejection? How does, how, how does Jesus respond to people that don't accept his invitation? 
Well, he, he shows us. We see how he responds as he kind of lets us in on this little private and this personal prayer to God. Look what he says in 25. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. He gives thanks. He's not angry. He's not slighted. He's not grumbling. He's not complaining. He actually turns to God and thanks him. He thanks him. In the midst of rejection, he thanks him. Why? Well, he knows God's his father. He knows God is compassionate and kind. And he also knows that he's the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the sovereign one. In other words, Jesus knows that their rejection is even under the sovereignty of God. That that God is actually choosing to display his sovereignty in concealing these things from the wise and in revealing them to the young and to the baby. I mean, it's incredible. God is displaying his sovereignty in the concealing of wisdom, of these things. Now, what are these things that he's speaking about? Well, it must speak about the nature of the kingdom coming in Jesus. Jesus is the king. He's come to bring a kingdom. He's evidenced the power of the kingdom by miracles. Now, I don't want you to think that Jesus is thanking God that smart people can't get in and simple people do get in. I don't think he's saying that. I think what Jesus is thanking God for is that the way of salvation, the way to know God, isn't discerned through human wisdom. It's not born out of our own intellectual resources that we can find God. In other words, our best human achievements, our best human discernment, that will not bring us face to face with God. That's inadequate. That we, in our own abilities, cannot penetrate divine truth and find God, and secure him as ours, cannot happen. But he reveals it to the babes. The little children, that word, really means infant, or a child still at the breast. Someone so young, they don't even understand that that he can reveal things to this young child. And, And it's really an expression, it's a figurative way of speaking about the nature of the humble and the dependent. Those who have no resources, those who have no ability, in fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great preacher of the 20th century in, in London, said this. He says, the babes are a people who have come to see their own insufficiency, who have wisdom to know what they do not know. In other words, it's God's plan, and Jesus is thanking him for it, that he's revealing these things to the humble, to the simple, to those who don't have it all together. We've already seen this, haven't we? I and mean, we've looked through all these chapters of Matthew. Who's coming into the kingdom? Who have we seen enter the kingdom? Women, children, lepers, paralytics, tax collectors, prostitutes. I mean, these were the humbled of society, would you say? That was the indication of God's plan. Let me, let me just read for you in Matthew 21. It's really a startling verse. I had never really seen it before. I was looking for something else. I came across this and was shocked at how it fits with our text. In Matthew 21, uh, Jesus is speaking about to the Pharisees. He's saying, listen, tax collectors and sinners are getting into the kingdom ahead of you. Here's what he says. When John came to you in the way of righteousness, you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. Here's what Jesus says. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe them. What's he saying? 
He's saying that the religious leaders, if they were so wise, if they were such men of understanding, they should have seen tax collectors and sinners turning to Jesus and saying, this is it, this is the kingdom. Look, because he reveals to babes. These are the humbled of society. And they're turning to Jesus, but the wise wouldn't have them. I mean, it's incredible that, that, that Jesus is thanking God that rejection isn't an accident. It's not, a, it's not an exception. It's not a surprise to Jesus. In fact, Jesus thanks God for it. Look at 26, what he says. He says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus is thanking the Father that the Father in this paradoxical plan actually conceals from the wise that you cannot come to me of your own merit and arrogance and wisdom, but he reveals it to the babes. Now, there's a clear word for us, all of us, but particularly for those of you here today that may be interested in Christianity. This is clearly a mystery that God has the sovereign right to withhold and conceal information from those whom he chooses. It's hard to understand. It may surprise you. It may, it may trouble you. You may think, well, boy, that seems almost unfair. It almost seems unkind. In fact, because it doesn't accord with your wisdom and experience, you're ready to dismiss it or perhaps even argue with it. In fact, I know many people are actually justified to hold God in contempt because of verses like this. I would just give you a word of caution. I would simply say to you, to remember the limits of human wisdom. Remember the limits of human wisdom. Human wisdom will not take you to God. That's what he's saying. In fact, Paul says it this way in, in 1 Corinthians 1.19. He says, this is quoting from Isaiah. He says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The foolishness of preaching the gospel is the means by which God saves. So the rejections will come and Jesus can turn and say, thank you. You've hidden these things from the wise. It's incredible. J.C. Ryle, a preacher in England in the 19th century, said, "Let us watch. here's the warning, he says, let us watch against pride in every shape, pride of intellect, pride of wealth, pride in our own goodness, pride in our own deserts. Nothing is so likely to keep a man out of heaven and prevent him seeing Christ as pride. So long as we think we are something, we shall never be saved. Does that call for humility? How do we handle that? How does the Christian handle this kind of mystery? We surely don't look at it with contempt. I think we handle it like a very expensive vase. You know, we rejoice over its beauty, but we almost revere it. You know, there is the rejoicing that we want to experience, that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He has revealed these things to us. We can't trace them all out. We don't understand it all. But that doesn't prevent us from thanking him like Jesus did. If Jesus says, yes, Father, such was your gracious will, we say, yes, Father, such was your gracious will. In fact, literally, in Greek, it means it pleased you to do this. If it pleases God, it pleases me. That's how we, the Christian, respond. We rejoice over the mysteries. Why? Because they act as a buffer against our pride and arrogance. You can't figure it all out. You can't. If you did, you'd be God. And that's the first sin. 
the one who wants to try to answer all the mysteries and to demand to know things as God knows them is doing nothing more than Adam and Eve prior. We humble ourselves and rejoice. And with Paul, we come to mysteries like this and we say with Paul in Romans, oh, the depth of your riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. We just stand back. God, you're unbelievably amazing. But not only that, but we revere it. We allow it to humble ourselves. We allow it to buffet our arrogance and our pride. And we sit there and think, but we do know. We must be the babes in this. We know about it. Why? Have you ever stopped, when you looked at the mysteries of God, such as this, that God conceals and chooses to reveal, have you ever wondered, why do I know what I know? Why do you believe Did you figure it out? Do you ever just stop and wonder over his mercy more than the mystery? I I, I sit there and I'm I'm profound. We're going to sing the song at the end of the the service by Isaac Watts uh, entitled, How Awful and How Sweet is This Place? And, And these are some of the lyrics that we're going to sing. While all our hearts... And all our songs join to admire the feast. So it's, it's a quick snapshot of heaven. And he says, well, all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast. That is the messianic feast. He says this, each of us will cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Have you ever just pondered why you believe? Have you ever pondered why you know these things? Doesn't it humble you? Doesn't it lead you to worship? Jonathan Edwards gave words to his praise. And he says this. He says, make God the particular object of your praises. The doctrine of electing grace shows what great reason you have to do so. If God has so valued you, set so much on you, has bestowed greater mercies upon you, is it too little for you to make God the particular object of your praise and thankfulness? If God so distinguishes you with his mercies, ought you not to distinguish him in your praises? You should make it your great care. And study how to glorify that God who has so particularly been merciful to you. Let's rejoice. Let's be humble. We as a church, I mean, it speaks to us individually. But it really speaks to us corporately, doesn't it? We should strive to be the most humble people in Raleigh. We've been particularly blessed. All because he's merciful to us. There's nothing in us. That's the... That's what the gospel screams to us. There's nothing in us that warranted his mercy other than his choice to bestow it. That makes us humble. It makes us humble. It makes us able. Think about the implications of this place being this humble. The brokenness that we have, we wouldn't be so ashamed of it. The ability to be transparent would increase. The ability to, to move across the aisle towards people that are different than us, it would increase. Why? Because we're so humble. We understand what we really are. We don't have to put on airs. We don't have to put forth these facades of 
of having it all together. We don't have to put our best foot forward. You can put your worst foot forward because you know what? We're a humble people and we would love you anyways. I mean, the implications of this being played out in a corporate setting are pretty profound. It would be a magnet for the outside world to see it because they won't see it anywhere. They may see it here. So this is this divine mystery, right? That, that in fact, God has concealed, and Jesus thanks him for it. But you may be asking, you may be thinking like right now, is you may be thinking, well, how can I really believe Jesus? I mean, what gives him the right to just declare this? I mean, it is kind of amazing. Jesus makes these bold statements. Don't you ever wonder, where does he get off saying those things? Well, 27 kind of explains how he can say such things. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. We're still, by the way, on the other side of the story. We're still hearing the rest of the story right now. We're still hearing the backdrop of salvation. He says, all things have been handed over to me by the Father. By my Father, he says. First time in Matthew that he calls him my Father. and It's always a a reminder to pay attention. He's saying all things. So what's Jesus saying? Is Jesus saying that right now at this stage of ministry, he has all control of all authority, power, dominion, light, darkness, the whole thing? Is he saying that? I don't think so. He will say that, and it will be true after the ascension. But Jesus Christ right now at this point of ministry, all things, I believe, is referring to the things of the kingdom, that he has the secrets of the kingdom to declare that he has power to display the kingdom. He can raise the dead. He can cleanse the leper. He can free the demonized. He can preach the gospel. He can bring people into the kingdom. All these things have been handed to Jesus. He has the authority to make such a mysterious proclamation. He has the authority to explain to us that God does conceal this from the wise. Because of his unique relationship with God. Only Jesus can say these things. Look at the relationship he has. He says, no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. This is language that you would expect from the Gospel of John. Many liberal scholars want to say this wasn't even from Matthew. But look at how it explains the unique relationship that they have. That nobody knows the Son except the Father. And nobody knows the Father. Now listen. It is true that God had given revelation, the nation of Israel knew God, but their knowledge of God was limited in scope, and it was also imperfect in their grasp of it. Only Jesus has this intimate knowledge with the Father, where he knows the Father intimately, and the Father knows him. What is this? Folks, if you don't hear it, this is kind of the foundation of the triune God, that nobody can know God fully accept God, Jesus, the Son. He knows God not just factually or formally. He knows him perfectly and fully. And he knows him personally by being in communion with him. I mean, this is profound. What Jesus is ascribing to himself It's overwhelming. The the reciprocal and the mutual knowledge that they have to one another confirm to us this is true. This is really true. God is placing amazing glory on the Son right now in this passage. That the Son would now be equal to God in every way, sovereign over salvation. And look at what he says at the end of 27. 
It says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus has the divine prerogative to expose and express and declare Christ to those whom he chooses. That ought to startle us. At one way, but before we get too complicated here, at one way it's simple to understand. Let me read it to you again. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal. That's simple to understand. Jesus makes the choice to reveal God to people. It's his prerogative. Why? Because he knows the Father intimately, and he's the Lord of creation, all of creation. He knows him intimately. And yet it's complex. I mean, before you try to untangle it, though, can we just step back and think that this Jesus is much more glorious than I would have imagined? Can we just step back for a minute and just say, Jesus is being exalted in this passage in a way that ought to draw our worship. I mean, we just got to step back and say, this Jesus is much more than perhaps I ever reckoned with. I mean, at a minimum for the non-Christian here, you will see why the Christian holds Christ to be the exclusive path to God. For the non-Christian here, you will, you will see it's not arrogant or toe-headed or narrow-minded. The, the Christi- Christianity teaches simply that only Jesus has access to the Father, so only Jesus can be the channel of his grace and love, that there is no coming to the Father apart. And that's why when Philip asked Jesus, hey, we've been with you for a little bit, Jesus, when are you going to show us the Father? And he says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Or in, in 14.6, he says, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You know, over and over you have this language. There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. But for the Christian here, do you see the power Jesus chooses to reveal to anyone he chooses? Why do you think he chose an infant? Why do you think he chose to say that I can reveal the glory of God to an infant. You know, perhaps you haven't heard, but I'm a grandfather. I won't bring this up repeatedly, and I, I put the people that asked me to put the pictures away and everything. But I, I went over the other day to give them a pastoral call, just because I'm concerned about his soul. <laughs> Gave me an excuse. I said, Rachel, I've got to come over. It's, pa- it's ministry. Just, sorry, got to come see the child. And, uh, and, and we're holding banks, and... Um, you know how little kids, when they're just born, they have the funniest faces and they're scrunching their faces. And she goes, what do you think he's thinking? And, uh, you know, in my sensitive way, I said, nothing. I hate <laughs> he just wants to probably be fed again. Um, but the reason that Jesus says the infants here is because his power knows no limits to open eyes. He can open the eyes of a nursing infant. There is no one here that is outside God's ability to open your eyes. You can be the most ignorant, untrained, uneducated person. You can be so steeped in sin that you wouldn't know right side. I don't know the rest of the expression. You wouldn't know upside from downside. I don't know. But you can be so steep in sin, you're like, he can't save me. He can. That's the point. The power is Jesus can choose to reveal the Father to anybody that he wants. You can be so broken. You can be so lost. 
You can be so turned inward, he can still open your eyes. That's the power. That's part of the point of the passage. Not just to declare the sovereignty of Jesus, choosing whom he would to open their eyes, but he can break through even the mind of an infant that doesn't even know its own existence. That's why we just honor Christ. That's why we revere him. That's why we make much of him. Not just the power for the Christian. We are humbled by this. If you're a Christian here, you're a Christian because he chose to reveal himself to you. If you're a Christian here, you and I are the most humble of people because we know we didn't choose him. He chose us. It says right in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. He always gets the place of primacy. Think about it for a minute. If you don't believe that, you'll always be part of the salvation process. If we give to you credit or even a partial, even an infinitesimal amount of responsibility in salvation, then you share the glory with the one who will share his glory with no one. Interesting, in a letter between George Whitfield and Charles Wesley, they were debating this issue of election. Charles Wesley uh, believed in election of God being based upon the knowledge that this person would choose him. So man's involved in the salvation event. And George Whitfield believed in what I'm preaching here. And in this letter, here's what he wrote to him. He said this. He said, let us seek the truth that shall most displace man and exalt the Lord Christ. Nothing but the doctrines of the Reformation can do this. All others leave free will in man and make him, in part, at least, a savior to himself. I know Christ is all in all. Man is nothing. He hath a free will to go to hell, but none to go to heaven. Till God worketh in him to will and to do his good pleasure. Oh, the excellency of the doctrine of election and of the saint's final perseverance. I am persuaded till a man comes to believe and feel these important truths, he cannot come out of himself. But when convinced of these and assured of their application to his own heart, he then walks by faith indeed. It's a profound release that we want Christ to be exalted. And this idea of Christ being sovereign over election doesn't dissuade faith, it engenders it. It encourages it. And by the way, it doesn't discourage good works. It, in fact, it encourages those too. And we're going to see why in a moment. So this is the mystery. This is kind of the, the dark side, if you will. Many of you are Christian here, and you don't know how you got to be. You may have thought, like I thought, you may have thought, well, no, no, I, I, I surveyed the landscape of religions. I liked Christianity. Jesus seemed good. I followed him. But now you see the backdrop of it, that God reveals these truths to the babes, to those who are humbled. He reveals them, and then he, Jesus draws them to the Father. He draws them to himself, and that's his sovereign prerogative. And this ought to lead to reverence and worship and thankfulness and gratitude and humility. And so it does it now, hearing that, understanding that. You see now why when we get to 28, and he says, come to me. Jesus has every right to make this invitation because he's the sovereign one who's choosing people to come to know the Father. If this is bending your mind around, just, just hang with me here for a minute. But in 28 makes sense because of 25 and 26 and 27. He says, come to me, all you who labor. Now this creates a problem for people because you say, is he inviting all people? 
Well, he is inviting. He's inviting all those troubled and weary. In other words, it's not without qualification. He says, come to me. He doesn't just stop and he says, come to me all. He didn't say that. He says, come to me all who are troubled and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. This shouldn't surprise you. Even from last week, you think, well, shouldn't you? We kind of think of God with this democratic model and we think that there should be a proportionate exercising of grace to every single individual in the world. We know that doesn't happen. We know it doesn't happen. In practical terms, it doesn't happen. Some people live to be 100 years old underneath the roof of a church here in the gospel every week. Other people live and die within two days never hearing it. We know there isn't this equal distribution of evidence of God's glory. You even see it in Matthew eleven twenty one. Isn't it amazing what Jesus said? Look at eleven twenty one, Because he said, Jesus himself said, if I had done the things entire in Sidon that I did in Galilee, they would have repented long ago. Jesus is admitting that he did more in Galilee and they still rejected him as opposed to what he could have done in Tyre and Sidon. So he's saying, come to me, all you who are weary. He's speaking to a people who are broken and humbled. Who are these weary people? With these weary people, it could be a number of things, actually. It can be people that are wearied under the man-made addition to the law. You you, you know, we we see that in Matthew 23. He's going to criticize the Pharisees. He says this. He says, you tie heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. He's criticizing the Pharisees for adding to God's law with man-made law, burdening people. They're wearied under the load of what I have to do to find acceptance with God. See, the same thing in Acts 15.10. He says, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke, obviously in our text, on the neck of the disciples that neither their fathers nor we have been able to bear? Some of you come out of very legalistic homes. You come out of homes that are very strict. What you wear, what you, what you say, how you do this and how you do that. And it's burdensome, it's wearying, and it's also often far from the gospel. And it just wearies you down. And Jesus is saying to those who are stuck in this religiosity, where they're still trying to find acceptance with God through all the religious works, he says, come to me. That's not me, come to me. Or those weary with the world. You know, have you, have you read the paper lately? You can be weary with the world. Now, I'm not saying a weariness comes from, I didn't get the car I wanted, or I didn't get the job I wanted, or my house isn't what I thought it would be. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the people that are truly burdened. They're groaning for redemption. They, they, they look at their bodies breaking down. They look at everything breaks down. You buy something in, in a month, the handle breaks off. It's just the way life is. Our lives are like a house at the beach. You know, the, the salt air just destroys those things. You're constant. Everything's working against you in this world. And Jesus is saying to those who are weary over life and, you're, and you're, you're groaning for redemption, he says, come to me, I'll give you rest. And he's saying, he's also speaking to those weary with sin. I mean, you know, Nick last week said, we make this allegiance to Jesus, and then we renege on it over and over. And you know those besetting sins that you keep repeating? Don't they make you weary? Aren't you tired of gossiping? I mean, aren't you tired of slipping into lust? Aren't you tired of, of choosing to lie to get out of a problem, whether just resting in the mercy of God and telling the truth? 
Aren't you lying? Don't you get tired and wearied when you constantly have to try to put your best foot forward so that people might like you? I mean, isn't it fatiguing? Jesus is saying, come to me. That's who he's speaking to. Aren't you weary of these things? He, the one, the one who has come to reveal the truth of God, says, come to me and I'll give you rest. And coming to Jesus, this is the other side now. This is responding to the invitation. Coming to Jesus isn't coming to a doctrine or a set of propositional truths. As important as they will be, it's coming to a personal Savior. It's not an ideology. It's not a, it's not a new framework for living. It's not a new moral code. It, it's coming to a person. I, I love what Alexander McLaren was a Scottish minister. And he says, it's hard to love a proposition. It's easy to love a person. And Jesus is a person. He's come in the flesh to say, come to me. But notice what he says in here. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And this is interesting. You know, the yoke uh, is just a wooden instrument that two oxes would, would you know, be tethered under the plow field or pull a cart, or it could be a single yoke kind of across your shoulders to help carry two buckets of water. A, a yoke is really an instrument of submission. It's an instrument of, of there's a master and there's the one under the yoke <coughs> receiving the direction of the master. And Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you. Now, I don't think he's saying here, although a lot of you have kind of loved this idyllic picture of Jesus is in the yoke and I get in the yoke with him. Sorry, don't think that's what he's speaking about. Sorry, you can, you know, preachers love this stuff. Come on, get in the yoke with Jesus and you can plow the field together. I don't think he's saying that. He's not saying join me in the yoke. He's saying take my yoke. Take my yoke upon you. In other words, it's a figurative way of come to me and be obedient to me. Be submissive to me. Commit your allegiance to me and live for my glory. That's, I think, what he's saying here. And he's saying, learn from me. To learn from me is to, the word for learn is really disciple. Be a disciple, learn. You have a life of learning, studying, pursuing God. So what we see here is this picture of invitation to the Christian faith isn't decisionism. It isn't, I chose Jesus when I was 12. This is a lifestyle that that, that I come to him by faith. And then I enter this process of living for him, but I fail, so I repent. And I fail, but I repent. And I'm learning, I'm gaining. This is a life that he involves us in. Not a decision, not a choice. It may have initially started that way, but it goes forth that every day we're a disciple. Every day we're learning. Every day we're taking his yoke. But let me raise a question up for you. Taking his yoke is supposed to lead to rest. But when you think about his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount that we're supposed to learn and follow, you begin to feel maybe the burden come back. I mean, if you think living under the Pharisees... Okay, so let me give you one of the Pharisees, Sabbath. Incidentally, Jesus leading us to a rest. If you were to read in chapter 12, you see him go after their abuse of the Sabbath because they were denying the people rest. So here's what the Pharisees would say, that you can't spit on the Sabbath because if you spit on the Sabbath and you kick dirt into the spittle, that would be making bricks. 
and you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath because you're supposed to honor the Lord. That's how burdensome the law can be. But when you think about Jesus giving a law in Matthew 5, when he speaks about, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Okay, that makes sense. It's part of the command, commandments. And you think, Jesus says, but I tell you, don't look at a woman lustfully or you've committed adultery. Well, he just internalized the law. Now I'm, I'm dead in the water. Right now I'm dead in the water. You know, it, it's a burdening. He, he says, take my yoke upon you and I'll give you rest. How? That's worse. That's more burdensome. How can his yoke lead me to rest when you see his commands to be more severe in some respects than the actual Pharisees? Well, he tells us, thankful that he tells us. He says, for I am gentle and I'm lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. In other words, Jesus gives us this autobiographical statement of himself. And he says, I'm, I'm humble. And when Jesus speaks about his humility, it draws your mind back to the text that, that uh, Charles read in Philippians 2. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He became a man. He became a servant. He humbled himself to death on a cross. The humiliation is what he's pointing to. The humiliation of Christ on a cross. That on the cross, Jesus Christ has brought about a new yoke, a new relationship with God that isn't predicated on your behavior, but is predicated upon God's mercy to you. So the yoke of Christ is a new relationship where now we access and relate to God, not through the performance that we've met forth this week, but based upon his mercy and based upon Christ. That Christ has borne our sins on his body, on the tree, So now we've been forgiven of our sins. And Jesus has lived a perfect life so that now his righteousness, that the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. We know the Father's pleasure is in the Son, and now the Father's pleasure is in us because we're in the Son. So now his yoke is easy because we're not walking in light of his word as a means of securing God's love, but we're walking in light of his word as a means of displaying our love for him. No longer are we fighting for acceptance. What we're, we're not fighting for anything. We're displaying the grace that he's given to us out of the gratitude and the overflow of joy in our heart. I mean, cease striving. That's what he's saying. I'll give you rest. Rest from your trying to climb the ladder to God. So it's a glorious invitation. There's two parts to this. There's the foundation of salvation where God has chosen for his own sovereign purposes to conceal things from the wise but to reveal them to babes and then we see jesus explain how he now has been given divine prerogative to make this invitation and the invitation goes out to us today so today even even today through the preacher that those of you who are interested in christianity and, and and you are weary and you're weary over your sin you're weary over the alienation that you have with god perhaps you're weary over the world not just because you want a better life but because you're you're groaning for something more that god must have or perhaps you're, you're weary, you've been stuck in a legalistic, formulaic, I'm going to do these things and God will love me. And if I don't have a devotional time, or if I don't do this, or if I don't do this, then God's love goes up and down like a yo-yo based upon what you do. He says, come to me. I'm, he's not saying just come to church, or come to the pastor, or come to the table. Come to Jesus. Ralph said this about 
coming. He says, coming to Jesus means coming in faith. It's an act of the soul which takes place as you feel your sins and see your need for him. You trust him. You cast yourself fully on him. You turn to him as one empty to be filled, sinful to be forgiven. You turn to him hungry to be fed. You turn to him sick to be healed. And then you'll find the rest. But for those of you who are are Christian here, your call, if you have come to him by faith, is to strive to enter the rest. That that rest is the repose of the soul that all is well between God and me. All is well. We are son and father. He loves me with an infinite love. That's the rest he is giving us. And for those of you, you you're struggling with sin in your life, then look to the cross. Find the rest in the cross. He died for those things. If you're struggling with never doing enough for God, look to Jesus. He's the channel of his electing love to you. If you're struggling with trial and adversity and you're, you're just being crushed under the weight because entering his rest doesn't mean we won't suffer. But to find repose in the suffering comes as we think on Christ, seated at the right hand having all things handed to him by the Father, that he has the sustaining grace to give you, to persevere you through the trial if he doesn't remove you from it. It's a glorious five, six verses here. The foundation is clear. You see the backdrop of God's electing mercy, and then the invitation goes out and the response is clear. Let me pray for us that, that this truth would be uh, yeah, profoundly written on your heart. For those, if this has caused some dissonance in your soul, if, if it's unsettled you, then come forward after the service or speak with one of the elders or, as I've often said, I think you could probably speak with a member of this church and ask them. Um, but don't leave here today. Uh, I, I want you to leave here today more settled in your being outside the camp or being inside the camp. I don't want to leave you in confusion. The invitation goes out. And, and, and if you do choose, if you do respond to this invitation, you, you want to bring your weariness to him, then, then come. Come forward later and, and see me at the front. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy that you have You have revealed to us the backdrop of this glorious salvation. You have shown to us what preceded this outward invitation to the nations. I pray, Father, that for your children here, they would be thankful, humble, grateful over your mercy in their life, that they would leave here happy to be a guest that they would wonder with joy at being, uh, at being invited to the guest rather than choosing to starve. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Like to, before I call the elders and servers forward, um, if you can give me your minds for one more minute as we prepare for this table. This is a table of, of rest. It's a place where we see how God has created the way that we can come to him without fear, that we can rest. So when you're coming to the table, you're thinking this is the means by which God has given to us 
to enter into his rest. So, so the elder will break the bread, reminding us of the body being broken. And, and you're going to dip the bread in the cup, reminding you that his body was broken for my sins and the blood was shed to establish a new covenant where God now, because he is perfectly faithful, he will never leave you nor forsake you. That God has unilaterally established a covenant toward you in his son that you will forever be his. You don't need to fear God. You need to revere God, but you don't need to fear him. He's a a good and compassionate father to you. And so you may, we're going to take a minute and and a a few seconds and look back at our week because we don't want to come to the table in a manner unworthy. And we're going to confess our sins. But, but I don't want you to see your failures at following Jesus and lose the rest. That's why the mercy of God has given us this celebration on a regular basis. Baptism is done once. The table is done repeatedly. Why? Because we sin. And the table is coming back to the rest. It's a reminder to you. This is what Jesus has done for you to establish you as a son or daughter before the Father. And so it's to renew the rest that you have. So perhaps some of you are weary <clears throat> in terms of the besetting sins that you're fighting. Perhaps you are weary that you never measure up to people around you. Perhaps you're weary that you're just under the load of this world just pressing upon you. And I, I would just remind you, this is a table of joy for you. It's a table of rest. Don't find joy in the accomplishments that you've had this week. Maybe you've had a great week. Rather find joy in the one who has put you in perfect position with the Father. And if you've had a bad week and you're kind of struggling with despair right now, then confess those sins and look to Christ. Look to him who has washed you and cleansed you from all these things. And so let this table be a time of meeting with God to to renew your enjoyment of the rest that is yours in the Son. So let's take a minute now and just uh, confess those sins silently and uh, seek solace from the Father through the work of the Son, and then I will close us in prayer in just a minute.